Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our aspirations, rather than books. Hello and welcome to this Christmas edition of Bookmark. This is the show that talks about books and writing with a local slant and with a festive slant too, of course, for this programme. Our featured guest is Annie Gray talking about her book At Christmas We Feast, Festive Food Through the Ages. We'll also hear from Harry Sidebottom on his standalone novel The Burning Road and Ken Follett will chat about his new spy thriller Never. Annie will give you a proper introduction in just a moment but first of all welcome to Bookmark. Thank you for having me. Lovely to have you here and talking books as we will be doing I uh, thought about cookbooks and wondered just how many you have. I think the last time I counted I do have a database of my historic cookbooks and the last time I looked at that there were about 500 historic (gasps) ones so not that many really but then we've also got a sort of modern collection so the ones that other people have the Nigel Slaters and uh, and Ruby Tandes and Catherine Phipps of this world so I think we've probably only got about 150 maybe (laughs) modern ones only and how many of those are specifically about Christmas there aren't actually that many specific Christmas books around. I suppose in the last decade or so, there's been an explosion of specific Christmas books. Anya Dunk's published one this year that's very good, and, and there's quite a few others. But historically, there haven't been that many specific Christmas books, and I do, I think, have most of them. So I probably only have five specific Christmas recipe books, and then I've got a number of other books on Christmas generally. And of those Christmas books, is the one that's particularly well-thumbed? Is the one you'd recommend? No, there isn't, because I don't think there are such things as Christmas foods. Therefore, buying a book that's specific to Christmas is a conceit. I think that Christmas foods are whatever you want them to be. And yes, there are foods we associate with Christmas, But I think if we really like them, we should eat them all year round. Likewise, if there's something we really like all year round, we should eat that at Christmas. I would actually say don't buy a specific Christmas book because you're not actually going to use it at Christmas. You're going to just fall back on the tried and tested things you always do. On the other hand, there are some hilarious Christmas books from the past that are worth thumbing through because they're quite funny. I've got a 1980s one and thumbing through the pictures alone, just there's in it an alternative Christmas. How exciting to have prawn cocktail with avocado and all of the pictures are soft focus. So there's Vaseline and cute lighting and you do look at this and I suppose in some ways it makes you realise how food photography and the visuals of food have changed over the years so I wouldn't recommend buying one unless you find it for 50p in a charity shop but if you do find one for 50p in a charity shop sit down and revel in its nastiness or buy the Fanny Craddock one absolute laugh really yes she's still going strong in some quarters then well Fanny Craddock's a bit of a joke in a lot of quarters people have a a vision of her looking a bit like a drag queen she's very much larger than life she's a a sort of hyper reality version of feminine cooking in an evening dress in the Royal Albert Hall her Christmas specials are on iPlayer and if people haven't seen them and want to get in the zone while also simultaneously going what (laughs) then I would definitely recommend watching them all but she was tremendously popular and I do think that this modern snobbishness about Fanny Craddock is very misplaced it's kind of the equivalent of people in 50 years looking back and going oh Jamie Oliver like anyone would ever cook from him I think actually 
Fanny Craddock deserves to be more celebrated than she is in many ways. Yes, some of her recipes are terrible. And the things she does on that Christmas show are just mind-boggling. I mean, the Christmas pudding. Why? What? No. She does it in a sieve to get it to go round. And a lot of that is just a build-up so she can show the Lurpak packet at the end because she's sponsored by them. And you don't need to do it in a sieve to make it go round. You just do it in a pudding cloth. But there's a gloriousness about what she does, a joy about what she does, which is very indicative of that post-war period where rationing had finally come to an end and Technicolor was coming in and people just wanted something cool and funky. So dis Fanny Craddock at your peril. And her Christmas book is in some ways bonkers, but when you read it, you also feel this sense of real yearning, of wanting to bring something back that is colourful into people's lives. And you can't hate the woman for that. Well, we're going to be talking more about uh, Christmas puddings and maybe Fanny Craddock uh, in the next uh, hour or so. But we'll listen to your first choice of music now. Is music important to you, Annie? Cooking, of course, it can be a chore, but cooking for the sheer joy of it is lovely and I like to put music on and just live in my own little world so I do enjoy listening to everything if I'm really concentrating it's got to be classical if I'm just researching it might be jazz if I'm swinging around the kitchen it'll be all sorts of terrible pop I love the Eurovision Song Contest and I do love a good Christmas song well yeah I could feel your enthusiasm coming through the email when I said can you choose some Christmas music (laughs) so uh, your first one is Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas by Ella Fitzgerald why this one? Because I love the golden age of jazz. Louis Armstrong, Ella Fitzgerald, Billie Holiday, all of the greats, they're great for a reason. The more you learn about their lives, the more you learn about the jazz movement, the more you appreciate them, I think. They're also great sing-along songs, a lot of them. Just being in the kitchen, steaming a pudding, making mincemeat, whatever it is, wrapping presents, panicking about the fact you haven't bought anything and it's the 24th of December and you're online organising vouchers for people. Whatever it is, actually just belting out a proper jazz classic. There's something really joyous in that and I drive to jazz a lot as well. It's great. Have yourself a merry little Christmas Let your heart be light That was Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas by Ella Fitzgerald, the first choice of music on Bookmark today from our featured guest, Annie Gray. Annie is a historian, cook, broadcaster and writer specialising in the history of food and dining in Britain from 1600 to the present day. She's the resident food historian on BBC Radio 4's The Kitchen Cabinet and has presented TV documentaries. Her previous books have looked at the eating habits of Queen Victoria and the life of Winston Churchill's cook. But her latest, published last month, focuses on Christmas. At Christmas We Feast, festive food through the ages, looks at the history and traditions associated with the food that appears on our plate at this time of year. The Spectator instantly described it as one of the best cookery books of the year and I very much enjoyed it too, Annie. Your enthusiasm for the subject just comes through the pages. Was this a book that you've been wanting to write for a while? Yes and no. For a long, long time I've been a public speaker, a lecturer, and I have a talk on Christmas and Christmas food, which has always been very, very popular. So in the middle of lockdown, as with so many writers, all of my work had dried up and I was kind of at a loose end and panicking as many people did and my publisher approached me and said have you thought about doing a book on Christmas food and I thought well actually I hadn't but it's perfect it's a topic I know back to front and it would be really good to do a little bit more research so that I really know it back to front and it's something that's actually quite nice and jolly and lockdown wasn't easy and I thought this will be lovely for me to write but also it will give a lot of other people joy as well. And if I can just raise a smile in, in quite a dark time, then that is kind of my function as a public historian and as a writer, surely. And it was a, an absolute joy to research and an absolute joy to write. It almost wrote itself, actually. It was lovely. And it was really nice as well to be writing in a form 
it was slightly different to normal. So The Greedy Queen and Victory in the Kitchen were both narrative histories, so they were relatively chronological, slightly thematic as well. This one, I wanted a book where people could pick it up and put it down. I was kind of thinking of people reading it in that kind of period between Christmas and New Year, or even reading it in July, you know, whatever. Not necessarily as a narrative book, something that, that they could have as a loo book or have on a table or have in the kitchen and just pick up and snip it into it and put it back down again. And concentration levels are low, that kind of thing. So I've written it as a series of essays. So there are essays on periods. So there's an essay on the Victorian Christmas, there's one on the Georgian Christmas and so on and so forth, and on the popular foods that people eat. Plus there are recipes, plus there are menus as well. And the idea was to kind of have something that really was almost like lots of little snacks rather than a kind of nine-course meal. So, no, it hadn't been in my head to write it for ages, but when it came about, it just seemed like an absolutely perfect thing to write. Yes, it does feel like a tasting menu, rather than a nice tasting menu. <laughs> and you've got recipes in it, as you say, some of them very, very old, which you've adapted. Were they easy to adapt? Some of them were, some of them really, really weren't. You can buy a book on Christmas foods or on any foods and you can stick it on your shelf and that's fine. What I wanted to do was to showcase the recipes from the past, not necessarily because I felt that they were worth reviving but because they're interesting and because they illustrate the story. So, for example, there's a recipe in there for brawn. Most people today would think of brawn as head cheese. You would take a pig's head and you'd boil it for several hours and strip it off and make it into pate. And the brawn that I've included was a Tudor brawn, the original type of brawn, which is effectively a vertical slice through a pig. So if you imagine a sort of side-on view of the pig and you'd take a trapezoid slice down from its spine to its belly, that is the brawn meaning brawny meaty that sense of it the recipes for the brawns were really 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 non-existent there are recipes for brawn of that style but they tend to say take your brawn use this spice mixture boil it as you would before very much trial and error so of course i had to adapt that a lot but that was fine that i knew what i was doing the one i struggled with was pepper cake pepper cake was a yorkshire recipe like gingerbread but using allspice and sometimes ginger and the recipes are all yeast risen and I must have tried five or six different types. But what I didn't want to do was cop out and add baking powder. So if I was going to make a pepper cake that was really good for modern taste, inspired by pepper cake, if you like, I would have added baking powder. It would have been a cake. But I was determined to make it with yeast. And eventually I ended up with one that I thought was both reflective of the Georgian period, but also suitable for modern eating with cheese. Others, fine. Was ale, work straight through. Chocolate wine, I cook that all the time anyway. It's a standard recipe in my repertoire. Brawn and the pepper cake were the challenging ones and most of the others were, yeah, they were quite easy. And you say in the book, this is the story of the British Christmas, which in practice means the English Christmas. And you mentioned Yorkshire there. There were lots of northern variations sometimes on some of the things. But what did you mean by that? There's two aspects. One is that it's very easy to use Britain and mean England. But here, the Scottish really didn't celebrate Christmas very much at all. Hogmanay was much, much bigger. And that's true really until the 1950s. So these traditions that I'm talking about, the foods, the other traditions that are in there, very much part of the English Christmas. The English Christmas does, to some extent, include the Welsh Christmas. There were specific Welsh traditions, but not that many. But I think also more than that, the idea of this British stroke English Christmas was a very global one, certainly in the 19th century when the modern Christmas as we see it today was really formed. So things like the Christmas tree and decorations and a kind of family focus. And that Christmas spread across the globe because of the empire. So the British living in India and the British in India were often Scottish, ironically, but you had English soldiers, you had English officials, English administrators. Right across the globe, you had people going out and bringing their Christmas with them. We have this idea in Britain that our Christmas is Christmas. Turkey, trees, Christmas pudding. 
But actually, if you go, you know, just 27 miles away over to France and you say Christmas, then you think of game, oysters, the New Year celebration, which is so important in France. You go to America and you say Christmas and it's different again. So we have very fixed ideas of Christmas and of Christmas foods. And they're so fixed that it's almost incomprehensible that other cultures would do it in a different way. But they do. And I think we often think that it's the Victorians who defined what Christmas is. But you say in your book, no one era did. Yeah, and the Victorians just thought they were putting Christmas back to what it was. For the Victorians, the Tudors were the people that really invented Christmas. And all the Victorians were doing were just sort of removing some of the commercial stuff around it and putting it back to where it should have been. There are aspects of Christmas that we do owe to the Victorians, certainly. The popularisation of the tree did come really through Victoria and Albert. And in particular, there was a picture of them with their tree in 1848 in the Illustrated London News that kind of went viral. Crackers were invented in the Victorian era as well. But the idea of having a a silly joke and a riddle goes again back to the Georgian period, if not before the Twelfth Cake and the fact that then you would have riddles when you cut your cake on Twelfth Night. So, yes, the Victorians changed Christmas and they gave us to a large extent the Christmas we think of as being Christmas today. But they didn't think they were doing that. And a lot of what we eat, we really do over the 20th century and not the Victorians at all. And so for your book, how did you define Christmas food? Things that frequently appear on the table at Christmas and that by the 20th century rarely appear at other times of the year. If you open modern newspapers, modern magazines, and you look at what they say is Christmas foods, certain things will appear and they obviously had to be in there. So mince pies, Christmas pudding, Christmas cake, turkey, Brussels sprouts, roast potatoes as well. I took part in a survey which looked at what people actually ate at Christmas. So I had that to inform me. So I know, for example, that roast potatoes are the thing that appears on the majority of tables at Christmas. But roast potatoes aren't really a Christmas food. We eat them all year round. So I put them in because they're so so represented at Christmas. Then trifle as well, which I wasn't going to put in. But I've got a, a gang of friends and they just said, you can't leave out trifle. Come on, trifle's a Christmas food. So the chapters are fairly long when it's a food like Christmas pudding, which is so unequivocally attached to Christmas. It's somewhat shorter when it's something like a sprout, which is a Christmas food, but it's not a Christmas food. And actually, when you go back in the past, no foods were Christmas foods. All of the foods we associate with Christmas started off as seasonal foods eaten all year round. It's why things like stir-up Sunday are such rubbish, because Christmas pudding was plum pudding before it was Christmas pudding. And as plum pudding, it was eaten throughout the winter. And you would make it and you would eat it on the same day. And the idea that you would kind of imbue this pudding with magical powers where it had to be made on a certain day and and aged and then I mean it's just absolute rubbish it was a Victorian schoolyard joke that kind of rumbled on for a while and then got picked up I think really in the last 10 to 15 years it's a controversial thing after controversial thing with you Annie <laughs> trifle no stirrups and we'll take a break for just a moment and we'll hear from uh, Ken Follett now Ken is one of the world's most successful authors over 178 million copies of the 36 books he has written have been sold in over 80 countries His latest, published last month, is Never, a contemporary spy thriller in which the world edges closer to all-out war and it instantly became the Sunday Times thriller of the month. When I spoke to Ken, I asked him, given the popularity of his ongoing Kingsbridge series set in the Middle Ages, what had enticed him to return to the present day for Never? Just that I thought it was a great story. That's really the only thing that I decide on. If I get an idea, I start to get that feeling that I can't wait to write it I say to myself, this is going to be great. This is going to be great. 
But I suppose there is something else as well, Lee, in that I've had this idea knocking about for a long time, but the world seems to have become a more dangerous place. And it sort of vaguely felt like time for a story that's that's a bit scary, a little bit anxious about the future of the globe. And of course, writers always write with stakes in mind. What are the stakes for the character? What are the stakes in the situation? These are the highest stakes of all here. Yes, that's right. And yet we're living at a time when there are several different ways in which we could destroy ourselves. Nuclear war is not the only possibility. You know, we could destroy the planet if we don't get control of climate change. And there may come along a virus from nowhere which will wipe us all out. Um, I can't remember another time in my lifetime when life on planet Earth felt so precarious. And writing this and researching this, positing in your head how things could get to a certain stage, was that quite scary? Did it feel real, like it could happen? Well, yes, indeed. And really, the novel has to be believable. Otherwise, it's just a fairy tale. So it was really important that I got all the details right and that the story that I was telling was really possible. And I talked to quite a lot of people who were in that world of high diplomacy and international politics. And I got several of them to read my first draft. And I said to them, you know, it's really important that you tell me if there's anything this that anything in this that makes you think, well, that probably couldn't really happen, because that's what I don't want. I don't want implausible stuff. If the story's not completely plausible, the suspense is weakened, isn't it? It has to be plausible for you to sit on the edge of your chair and think to yourself, oh my goodness, what's going to happen now? And your books and your novels usually are on a broad canvas. I mean, this is a massive canvas. You're you're talking about nations uh, in conflict with each other and you've got subplots and personal stories. How do you keep it all real and relevant for the reader? And how do you as a writer keep track of all that's going on? I have to make it easy for the reader. As readers, we like complicated stories, but we don't want to have to go back and check and read a bit again. And that's boring, isn't it? We want to charge on with the story. So so I've got to tell a complicated story in a way that it's immediately understandable. I begin by writing an outline of the book, which I take a long time over, six months to a year. I try to get all the important aspects of the story decided in that time. So then I've got a plan. And then I also, when it comes to the characters, I make a spreadsheet. And each time a new named character appears in the story, I put their name in the spreadsheet and usually their age and anything I've said to describe them. If I say somebody's got a big chin, I paste that into the spreadsheet. A, to make sure that I don't forget that he's got a big chin and B, to make sure that I don't reuse the phrase a big chin because readers notice that strangely if a phrase like that is used more than once they notice it and they wonder whether it's significant that's how I keep track of people's personal appearance and that's quite a difficult thing because it's very easy to give somebody blue eyes in chapter two and brown eyes in chapter nine (laughs) and what about all those subplots you've got going on how are you keeping control of those All of that is in the outline, and I generally stick to that outline. Of course, if I want to change it, I change it. If there's something that doesn't work as well as I thought it was going to work, then I do change it. Thankfully, that doesn't happen very often. So that very much helps me keep track. I can refer to that and say, now, when did he tell this lie? 
<laughs> I mean, that's the thing. That often happens in stories, doesn't it? People tell lies and then somebody finds out. And you've got it. Yes, you're quite right. You've got to keep track of all that because the reader knows. It's funny, isn't it? I mean, you may say it's complicated, but the reader knows. The reader thinks, oh, wait a minute. Actually, A happened before B. So that doesn't make sense. If it doesn't make sense, readers know immediately. You've, you've got to be very careful about that. And this is a, a spy novel. What is it about spy novels that appeals to us? The spy gets the news first. So when you're telling the story, it's useful to have spies because they will know before anybody else in the story what's happening. The other thing about spies is that they're always worried about being found out because they generally work in a clandestine way. They don't tell people that they're spies. They say, I work for the foreign office or something. And of course, particularly in a crisis, in a war or conflict, the spy in enemy territory is in great danger. So the spies add an element of suspense to the story. And because they know things first, they move the story faster. Would you have been a good spy, do you think? Terrible. <laughs> People always know if I'm telling a fib. I'm hopeless at it. Hopeless. <laughs> no, I wouldn't have been very good. And the whole business of action for spies, I mean, most spies don't ever shoot people, but some do occasionally. And I've only once ever fired guns. It was when I was in Texas. And I happened to, in conversation, mention that I'd never fired a gun. Oh, my God, that's terrible. They had to put that right straight away. We went to a field and they pinned a target onto a big tree, just a paper target with the usual roundels, a bullseye in the middle. And they said to me, now aim at the bullseye, squeeze the trigger very slowly. So I did exactly what they said. I was about six feet away from the target. So I aimed very carefully at the bullseye, squeezed the trigger. I missed the tree. <laughs> I, thought that, I thought that story was going to end so differently. I thought you were going to have a bullseye. <laughs> oh, I hope I never fire a gun again, but I, if I did have to, I would be totally useless. And it wasn't long ago, it was only about a year ago, Ken, that I was talking to you about the evening and the morning, your last uh, big novel before this one. And I say big novel because it was quite chunky. And this one is as well. So, so prolific. How are you doing this? How are you turning out these big, chunky, fantastic novels in such a short period of time? Well, I did write never unusually quickly. It's partly because of lockdown. There was nothing to do but work. The other thing, though, was that when I showed my publishers the first draft, they were very excited about it. They really liked it. And they said, please, can you finish this a bit more quickly than usual so we can publish it next year instead of the year after? And you know when? Your publishers are keen. You don't want to dampen their enthusiasm. You actually want to ride the wave. And so, of course, I said, well, yes, I'll do my absolute best to finish it in time for you to publish it next year. And I worked for about three months. I worked seven days a week, 12 hours a day, and got it done. Working that hard, it's actually quite good because there's an intensity to it all. You know, you hardly think about anything other than story so it's not a bad thing I mean you know <laughs> I want I want my leisure time so I'm not going to do it all the time and I also want to read as well as writing but for that short period it was really quite good so I finished it in time and they rushed it out this is going out in our Christmas special and uh, I know we're slightly ahead of Christmas at the moment but do you know what you'll be having for your Christmas dinner yet or what you'll be doing on Christmas day well I'm hoping to be in Santa Monica in, in California, because for different reasons, our three daughters with our six grandchildren have all moved to Southern California. And so, of course, we haven't seen them for two years. 
four of the grandchildren are, are young teenagers, so they're changing very fast. So we'll be having Christmas, well, with all of them, but in the home of one of the three of them, which we're really looking forward to. We're really suffering from family withdrawal, actually, because of the pandemic. I don't care what we eat. I'm sure it will be Christmas turkey, but I wouldn't mind if it was cheese sandwiches. The main thing is to see this family that I'm so fond of and that I've been out of touch with for so long. And Never by Ken Follett is published by Macmillan. We're speaking on Bookmark today to Annie Gray about her book At Christmas We Feast Festive Food Through the Ages. And you mentioned brawn and uh, bull's heads also used to appear regularly, didn't they, on the Christmas dinner table. Fair to say it's been quite a meaty past. There wasn't much until recently for the vegetarian. There wasn't, there wasn't, because up until the end of the Tudor period, we were still governed by Catholic law, which meant that Advent was a time of fast. Fasting in the Middle Ages and in the Tudor period meant fish. And fish was kind of a bit of a liminal term. I mean, beavers' tails were fish, barnacle geese were fish because they were in the water. And of course, if you're rich, you can eat really well. So porpoise, dolphin, whale. And if you're poor, you're living on stockfish. We look at the past and we think it's very meaty and there's nothing there for vegetarians. And what we forget is that about 90% of the population was vegetarian because they had no choice. I think it's a very insulting thing in some ways to look at the past and just dismiss the idea of vegetarianism because the reason meat was so prestigious and the reason meat was so sought after and the reason meals like Christmas meals were so meat heavy was precisely because so many people couldn't afford to eat meat ever. And at Christmas the poor would eat meat probably for the only time in the year. And that would be meat that was gifted to them by usually their employer or their landlord. And that was their Christmas treat. And for those that could afford meat, you wanted to show off. So you put so much meat on the table. And these feasts as well, people look at menus in the past and often say, oh, well, nobody ate any vegetables. There's no vegetables on these menus. And often vegetables are not mentioned, but they're either built into the dishes or they are just there but not mentioned. Why would you mention lettuce, beans, potatoes, when you can mention heron and bustard and swan. So, yes, the past was very meat-heavy if you take it at face value, but actually it really, really wasn't. But you're right in terms of the actual vegetarian movement. That didn't really get going until the end of the 19th century. There were vegetarians before that, but a lot of the time they were religious vegetarians or, or it was a protest movement. And then in the late 19th century, it got going much more about animal cruelty and about the ethics of farming. And it was also a a protest movement for the suffragettes as well. I mean, a lot of those early vegetarian restaurants, they were safe spaces for women because men didn't tend to go to them. But it burst onto the scene in terms of Christmas, kind of 1960s, when you get the classic nut roast. And to be honest, vegetarian cookery, certainly at Christmas, hasn't been great for much of its history. I think if you're a vegetarian, and even more if you're vegan, then probably looking to the past is going to leave you disappointed unless you love macaroni cheese. There is some consolation that when animals were killed, the whole of the animal was used. I mean, the things that pop up in some of these menus, they really are using every little bit of the animal. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is the thing. Meat now is cheap and therefore we are much less conscious of the respect that the animal deserves. There were terrible, terrible things done in the name of animal husbandry, but meat was so prestigious that you never wasted any of it. You hear people talk about humble pie and say that it was a dish for the poor because it had innards in it. Well, it's not a dish for the poor because it's got meat in it, but especially if it's venison. I mean, to have a deer herd, you had to be incredibly wealthy. So humble pie is the umbles 
the innards of a deer and they would be spiced and they would be boiled for a long time and they'd be put in a pie and it's delicious but meat was expensive a kidney a tail a head an eyeball an ear all of this was something that was eaten that was enjoyed and i think our modern day squeamishness about offal is really sad actually well, let's let's move away from Muffle now. Let's uh, talk about uh, your next choice of music. I was born on Christmas Day by Santa Chen. Why this one? Saint Etienne were the first group I saw as a live gig, and I just thought they were really, really good. And I've always really liked all of their music. I find the mixture of pure sweet pop and quite clever lyrics something that's very, very appealing. And this is a song that is not as well known as some of the kind of Christmas bangers that are out there, but I think it has its own level of appeal. And again, it's quite nice to sing along to. So, um, yeah. Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our And we're talking on Bookmark today to Annie Gray about her book At Christmas We Feast, Festive Food Through the Ages. And in the spirit of Christmas, Annie, you've gamely agreed to uh, play a game here. I'm going to pick five foods that you talk about in your book and you're going to have a minute on each of them. And then we'll get a little festive alarm at the end that tells you your minute's up. So let's start with mince pies. Okay, so mince pies are obviously fantastic, although not if you buy them in a shop, it's got to be said, where the pastry is usually pallid and horrible. I think people should go back to the past and try mincemeats from the past. If you're going to dip your toes into the waters of historic cookery, then mincemeat's a great place to start because it's quite easy. If you go back to the Tudor period, you're going to have a mincemeat, which, as the name suggests, is based on meat. So about a third meat, mutton, beef. A third suet, a third dried fruit and spices and things like that. Really packs a punch, very meaty, a little rich for modern tastes. Fast forward to the 18th century, probably about a sixth meat by that point. Go to the 19th century and if you make Eliza Acton's mincemeat, which is one of the best going, you'll make two and a half stone of mincemeat and about a pound of that will be beef. And it's really nice and gives a back note. And the meat disappears in the 20th century, but you can still make lemon ones. So have a crack at one of those and make puff pastry to go with it. Perfect, perfect, thank you. Right, let's move on and let's do Christmas cake now. Christmas cake is terrible. I love, love, love rich fruit cake and it's an amazing thing, but nobody ever knows when to eat Christmas cake. Do you have it on Christmas Day when you're full? Do you invite people over? In which case, who do you cut it with? It's a nightmare. So what we need to do is bring back the 12th cake, which was the precursor to Christmas cake before the Victorians decided to name it Christmas cake. So a 12th cake is a rich fruit cake. In its early days, it was usually yeasted and you would have tokens hidden within it. The main one was a bean. It was also called a bean cake and also a dried pea. And whoever found the bean would be the king and whoever found the pea would be the queen. And this evolved into a card game where you would pluck cards from a hat and they would have riddles with them. Things like when is a pudding like a school? When it is eaten? Oh, yeah, yes, I know. Yeah, it, they're not. It, yeah. They're kind of the level of crackerjack, yes. and that would be eaten on Twelfth Night, and everyone would get very drunk and have fun. So I think grab your Christmas cake, put a bean inside it, cut it with all your friends. Whoever finds the bean has got to do something. You decide. Lovely. Let's <laughs> go. Pigs in blankets. <laughs> Pigs in blankets. They are really, really big this year. Apparently pigs in blankets are like the thing for this year and last year. So you can even get pigs in blanket vodka and pigs in blanket crisps. No. Pigs in blankets are modern. Pigs in blankets are probably the most modern thing in the book. 
you did get sausage cakes, which were sausage meat wrapped in bacon in the late 19th century. And they were tended to be served as part of the first course of the meal, really. And you got pigs in blankets in America, but they were actually what we would call angels on horseback. Then you get to the 20th century and you start to get that idea of sausages wrapped in bacon come here. But it's kind of for parties, really. The 1950s, you have pigs in blankets, which are actually sausages put through potatoes, believe it or not. You have, again, a lot of stuff in America where the name and the concept come back over here and it's all to do with commercialisation and Martha Stewart and things like that. And it still doesn't get really going until the 1990s. So, pigs in blankets... No, just no, just no. (laughs) Right, we'll stay with uh, meat and move on to turkey. Everybody thinks that turkey is a Christmas bird that people have been eating forever. That's, again, not true, but it has had a long association with Christmas. So go back to the Tudor era, early Tudors, sort of 1510s, 1520s, and poultry was in season. Poultry is still a seasonal thing. We just don't think of it as seasonal because we can get poultry all year round in the supermarkets but actually chicken geese turkey swans all the christmas birds peacock all very much in season in the winter and peacocks and swans and things like that really really cool because they're really really big and really spectacular but they don't taste great so when the turkey was discovered in america big wild cunning bird really cool to go on hunts for really tasted good came over here in the tudor era progressively coming up through spain and france really captured the imagination was added to the roster of christmas birds but it wasn't the universal Christmas bird until the 1950s when ovens got big enough to put them in and we saw Thanksgiving turkeys from Christmas. So turkey is Christmas related. It's not the only bird you can eat. And it's called turkey because it came via turkey. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, last one is Christmas pudding. Christmas pudding's in decline, actually. Christmas pudding is something we really associate with Christmas, but when you do polls of people, probably only around half of them eat it now, and it's especially true of the younger generation. It's a real shame, but we eat it in the wrong way. We tend to look upon it as something that comes at the end of a meal, and the meal's very big. The average Christmas meal today is 5,000 calories. Christmas pudding, when it was plum pudding, was something you ate at every feast, and you'd eat it with beef. Beef and plum pudding were the symbols of Englishness in the 18th century and you'd have them at coronation feasts, birthday parties, coming of ages, you name it. So if you want to recreate a bit of the Georgian Christmas, then have a slice of beef and a slice of Christmas pudding and eat them together and you'll see how great it is as a combination. But in terms of Christmas pudding, it doesn't work at the end of a meal. It needs to be as part of the meal. Scrap it as the end of the meal and turn it into breakfast. Fry it in lard with a slice of bacon for your Boxing Day breakfast and that will give your Christmas pudding a whole new lease of life controversial point after controversial point. Thank you, Annie. Let's uh, give you a rest now. And uh, let's hear from uh, Harry Sidebottom. Harry began his career as a novelist with his Warrior of Rome series, which sold over half a million copies and was set during the great crisis of the Roman Empire in the 3rd century AD. His next series, Throne of Caesars, set during the same period, was equally successful. His latest novel, though, The Burning Road, is a standalone, named as one of 2021's best historical novels of the year by The Times. When I met Harry, I asked him to tell me what The Burning Road is about. It's an action-adventure thriller set in the Roman Empire. It's actually set on the island of Sicily. The hero and his teenage son are shipwrecked on the west coast of Sicily at the start. They're shipwrecked into a massive slave uprising. The rest of the family are on the East Coast, so it's a race against time to get across the spine of Sicily and save the rest of the family. And this is a standalone novel? Yes, it is. It's, I think, what publishers call them gateway novels. It's designed for the first-time reader who's never heard of me, never heard of my hero, Ballista. But it is the eighth novel that Ballista has, has starred in. So I've tried to write it so 
existing readers will find the odd little, I think they're called Easter eggs, that little hidden thing that'll resonate with them and think, oh, I remember that from a previous book. So how is it different from writing the next in a series? The next in a series, the plots run from one to another. In The Burning Road, the plot is entirely self-contained. And so how was that for you? More enjoyable because it's, it's all there? Or were you tempted to look back and forwards and set things for the future? I was tempted to look back and forward and I have, in fact, dropped in one thing that is looking forward to the future. It was quite liberating, really. I could just do what I wanted with that book and focus entirely on that and worry less about continuity. And this is probably the fourth or fifth time I've interviewed you and you've got a book coming out next year. You are very prolific. What's your secret? I think it's an OCD thing. I just work all the time. If I'm not researching or writing a book, I get really quite sort of twitchy and depressed and I feel guilty that I should be doing something. But as I'm very lucky enough to be a professional writer, I'm doing something I love, so I'm not going to complain about that too much. And all set in a time that you clearly love. Absolutely fascinates me. When you're thinking about ancient Rome, albeit unconsciously, you're thinking about yourself and your own times. You're comparing and contrasting then with now. For example, in The Burning Road... It's about slavery and freedom. It did make me think about what we regard as servitude, what we think of as freedom, and the similarities and differences. One of the key reasons I wanted to write it was to explore how did the Roman slave-owning elite justify doing that? I mean, they're highly civilised people, profoundly influenced by moral philosophy. They mainly believe in the brotherhood of man, and yet they own people. I find that a troubling and fascinating thing to investigate. Their way out of it is that in the Stoke philosophy, which was sort of hardwired into the Roman elite, everything that doesn't affect your inner person, your moral purpose, is irrelevant. So in fact, slavery is just legal fiction. A slave can be as free as you are if they have a noble, free soul. And equally, the great king of Persia, with everyone bowing and scraping before him, can be a slave if his soul is slavish. And that's a really clever way for them to justify or not even have to think about what they're actually doing to people. I'm guessing that you must have to kind of steep yourself in that philosophy when you're writing, because otherwise you're writing with a 21st century consciousness. Absolutely. And in fact, that's one thing that really irritates me about so many historical novels set in the classical world, is the fact they take us, modern people, with our attitudes and values, stick them in fancy dress and they think the job's done. Well, no, it's not, because the past... There's another country. They did things differently there. Yeah, I do steep myself in it. Of course, I had, I suppose, a slight advantage that I must be the last generation that had that weird classics education at school where I spent an awful lot of time not only translating Virgil and um, Homer, but then translating Greek into Latin, Latin into Greek. So kind of a lot of the stuff that would be in their mental furniture is already hardwired into mine. The tricky thing is to avoid anything Christian. I found myself typing in a phrase, the writing was on the wall. And I thought, no, it wasn't, not for this guy. Writing on the wall, surely that's from the Bible, isn't that Nebuchadnezzar's feast? It could never have occurred to the character I'm giving this thought to. Right, that's, what should we put instead? Um, he realised there was a, I don't know, I can't remember what I did, maybe a sword of Damocles hanging over his head. And the expressions, Leviathan, Tower of Babel, you can't have them. Really important to not only get the externals right, the clothes, the food, the houses, the weapons, but to try and get a plausible mentality for people in another culture. In terms of dialogue, you're not going down the forsooth 
road. I mean, that's Elizabethan England, but you're not going down whatever the equivalent for ancient Rome would have been. I think it's really jarring when people write in a sort of fake, the, thou, Latinity way. No, I, I give my characters dialogue as if it was received English. Are we talking about difference in values there? More brutal times as well were there in ancient Rome? I think we tend to forget that thou shalt not kill is a specifically Judeo-Christian commandment and the Romans didn't have it. The pacifism of Christians made them particularly weird to the Roman mentality. Life was very cheap. It was nasty, brutal and short for an awful lot of people. So what's it like writing those? Because we've written battle scenes before and domestic brutality as well. It's quite harrowing, actually, at times, because some of the scenes you sort of feel vaguely tainted by what your characters are doing and thinking. I'm not such a method actor that I actually (laughs) believe I've become one of my characters. I think that way complete madness would lie, wouldn't it? Definitely. And ancient Rome, it appeals to you still, it appeals to the reader. What is it about that time period? I'm not really sure. You can draw big pretentious parallels between ancient Rome as the one surviving superpower of the ancient world, threatened from the east, and America, maybe. The key thing is that interesting tension of the similarity and the difference. Mary Renault, the great novelist actually of ancient Greece, I think she said something like, the enduring fascination of reading and writing historical fiction is the tension between what's universal in us and what's really specific to them, and thus different from us. And perhaps between the domestic and the brutality that we talked of, because we think of ancient Romans as as civilised in very many ways, and yet, as you say, this very brutal, visceral attitude. Galen, the great doctor, founder of modern Western medicine, is full of little anecdotes, which are autobiographical and great. His mother, he said, was a very bad-tempered woman, and she would slap, bite and kick her maids. His father was a much more chilled guy. But some of his father's friends weren't. They could get very annoyed with their slaves, and if one annoyed them, they'd spin around and punch them in the face. And Galen says that his father would remonstrate with his friends, going, no, no, you shouldn't do that, it's very bad. Because if you punch a slave in the face, there's a really nasty danger that his teeth will cut your knuckles <laughs> horribly. And besides which, you, you'll have lost your self-control. And if you lose self-control, this is psychologically bad for you. And those psychological bad effects may in time, transform into physical bad effects for you. What you should do when you're angry with slaves, not punch them, but send another slave to get a big stick and then beat them in your own sweet time. I mean, Galen was a man who treated slaves, gave them medical treatment for free. And yet in this anecdote, it's all about the slave owner, their psychological and physical state. There's not a hint of any thought given to the pain, humiliation, suffering of the people who are being beaten or punched. And I think it sums up that sort of like us, but totally different. And echoes for current day thinking with regard to refugees and migrants. Not a dissimilar conversation is sometimes had. No, absolutely. That sort of xenophobic resistance to immigrants was very much there in the Roman world. Juvenile, the the satirist, is full of hideous complaints that could be wheeled out by any neo-fascist now about these ghastly Easterners flooding our city and making everything worse. And so what's next for you? I know you're, you're never idle, so what's, what have you got coming up? I've got two things that I'm writing now. I'm just finishing a biography of Rome's maddest emperor. 
Now, <laughs> sounds <I know> fantastic. <laughs> that's, in fact, I originally called the book Rome's Maddest Emperor, but we've now gone for a title <laughs> even more shouty. It's called Sex and Death. <laughs> Heliogabalus and the Decadence of Rome. There's a high bar there for Rome's Maddest Emperor. So it, to, it, to it's to a be really over high bar. You've got Caligula, you've got Nero, you've got Caracalla, but my boy Heliogabalus, he inherited the known world when he was 14. It did rather go to his head. If you think of any cultural taboo and barrier, my boy drives a horse and cart through them. Whether it's politics, whether it's religion, whether it's sexuality. But he makes a great prism to discuss issues that were important then and now, such as power, ethnicity, sexuality, gender. But I'm also writing a big historical novel, still set in the ancient world, but it's on Alexander the Great. And The Burning Road by Harry Sidebottom is published by Zaffa. We've been talking on Bookmark today to Annie Gray about her book At Christmas We Feast, Festive Food Through the Ages, which is published by Profile Books. Annie, we've been looking at the past. What about looking ahead? What changes do you foresee ahead for the Christmas dinner? Christmas dinner evolves really slowly. I think because we only eat it once a year. The big trend this year and last year was veganism. But veganism is really just part of a much wider environmental consciousness that the environmental consciousness is a bigger and more interesting trend than pure veganism, about which there are lots and lots of questions. It's quite an interesting ethical area. Consciousness of the environment has to be something that is going to play a role going forward. We are nearly all, I think, in this country starting to realise that we need to eat less meat and meat consumption is falling. I've included a chapter in the book on leftovers and I know that leftovers are very, very dear to a lot of people. Using leftovers is brilliant. Food waste is a huge, huge issue. And that is something where Christmas dinner in particular can be very, very bad. People buy and overbuy food at Christmas. So I think going forward, that level of overconsumption, I hope we will start to see come down. And what about you? What are you having for your Christmas dinner? Do you know yet? Well, I'm having pizza. One of the things that this book shows is that throughout the past, we've eaten a huge variety of food at Christmas. Yeah. For much of the past, if you were wealthy, they were just some of the elements on the table. So yeah, yeah, you might have turkey, but you probably also have pheasant, pork, beef. So there are no such things as Christmas foods. There are just foods that we happen to eat at Christmas. The key thing is to enjoy them. So seriously, you're having pizza? I'm having pizza. I bought a pizza oven years and years and years ago, a really cheap one, and it eventually fell apart. And I replaced it with a really good one, a really all-singing, all-dancing, beautiful, professional pizza oven. Brilliant if you have people over because you can cook a pizza in a minute and a half. And it's fun and it's got fire. And I think if there is actually one thing, the one continuity in Christmas, it's fire. It's light a big fire and stand around it. It's light a big fire and roast meat. So big fire, pizza in the oven. I love pizza. Last year I did a stuffing pizza. So sausage meat, apricots, chestnuts, mozzarella. And we also did my favourite. And yes, you're going to get letters, but I don't care. Spam and pineapple pizza. Is it? okay? invented by a Greek in Canada in the 1970s, named for Hawaii, eaten in my garden in England. You cannot get more global. So, yeah, I'm having pizza on Christmas Day. Enjoy your pizza (laughs) and your fire. And question we ask all our guests on Bookmark, what are you reading at the moment? So I've read everything Michael Connolly has written during lockdown. I found you needed something that was a kind of brain dump. I'm about to launch into a Miss Marple. Again, it's a bit sort of comfort food of books, really. Also, I've just bought a book on the Fens called 
Imperial Mud. Which By James I'm, Boyce. Yes, we interviewed him on this very which I'm show. very much looking year. forward to reading in it. And I, I can't wait to sort of wade in, if you'll excuse the pun. It's a great book. <laughs> yes, I heartily recommend it. Oh, I hope you enjoy I know you'll enjoy that. Thank you, Annie. We'll come back to you in just a moment for your last choice of music. But our next show is in the new year. Featured guest is Lynn Bryan talking about her memoir, Iron Man. We'll hear from Robert Hyde about Galileo Publishing. And Bonnie McBird will be talking about why she set her new Sherlock Holmes mystery in Cambridge. It goes without saying that we hope you have a very, very happy Christmas and we hope you get all the bookie treats you want. But we'll sign out now with uh, your last choice of music, Annie. Uh, Arguably controversial as well. Baby, It's Cold Outside by Tom Jones and Carys Matthews. Yeah, I hesitated with this one because it is controversial, mainly because of the line, say, what's in this drink? But... I researched it and I am relatively okay with it. The daughter of the couple who wrote it has gone on record saying that her parents certainly didn't intend anything at all dodgy and that that line was pretty constant in use in the 1950s just as a, you know, say what's in this drink, in a, in a kind of just colloquial sense. And I read a very good feminist essay looking at it and arguing quite strongly that you can read it in a feminist light as a woman actually going against the grain, doing what her family don't want her to do because she wants to do that and it's actually her choice. You can also just say this is Caris Matthews and Tom Jones. I mean, my goodness me, what an amazing duo. I'll listen to anything they record together, to be honest. And I think as recordings of this song goes, it's the least sleazy one ever. It's the most joyous one ever. And both of their voices are so lovely. They're so raw. They're so powerful. But to hear those two powerhouses of the Welsh music scene singing this song, to me, is just what Christmas is about. I really can't stay But baby, it's cold outside 